Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 33rd edition of Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, brought to you this month by the continuous cavalcade of chaos that is British politics. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you in person and online this evening for our first event under our third UK Prime Minister since we started this series back in April 2019. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Databytes. Welcome. And hands up if you've been invited to serve in the new government. <laughs> I won't be offended if any of you have to step out and take a call. She could do a lot worse. Let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. For those of you on social media, it's hashtag IFGDatabytes and we are live tweeting from at IFGEvents. If you're here in the building, the Wi-Fi is IFG Internet Hotspot, password Institute 123, all lowercase. And as ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb33. I promise it'll work this month. If you're here at the IFG, you can, of course, raise your hand. Why does the IFG organise Databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government to show everyone, including those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data can achieve in practice, and to put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does Databytes work? You're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a Databyte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 33rd Databytes. You can watch the previous 32 on the IFG website. So what's happened since we last met? Well, it's been a long summer. 84 years is also the average age of the Tory party membership. It's not. But we have a new Prime Minister. Not him. Not her either. But her. Liz Truss comes into office with more government experience than almost any other recent Prime Minister. Only Gordon Brown had more, and all of that was in the Treasury, while Truss has sampled several different departments. A bit like a fast stream for Prime Ministers, for those of you who remember the fast stream. It was while she was at DEFRA, overseeing the success of Open DEFRA, which opened up lots of data and put it at the heart of the organisation, that she gave a speech here at the IFG about reforming government. Good to know that she's a fan, at least until she's watched this. Tress has, of course, just appointed her first cabinet. You can follow all the moves on the IFG's live blog. There's been lots of positive discussion about diversity. Truss is our third female PM. For the first time, none of the great offices of state are held by a white man. And we have our first female deputy prime minister, Therese Coffey, also our new health secretary. Though her choice for chief medical officer seems a tad unconventional. I'm not sure Dr. Dre is a clinician. But there's more to do on diversity when it comes to education, according to the Sutton Trust. More than two-thirds of the cabinet are privately educated, compared to around 7% of the population. Truss's cabinet clear-out is slightly less dramatic than some previous transitions of, of Prime Minister, particularly Boris Johnson's transition from Theresa May, the Knight of the Blonde Knives, 
But Truss's takeover nonetheless heralds a lot of departures, moves, and new faces. Some departments have had more turnover than others. Top of that particular table is DCMS, the Ministry of Fun and Fundamentals, as it grapples with major legislation on data protection and internet regulation. Michelle Donnellan, whose two-day tenure as Education Secretary was the shortest cabinet stint in history, is the 11th Secretary of State at DCMS since May 2010. Fittingly for the department responsible for sport, that's enough for a football team. Not a very good one. They're all on the right wing. And judging by the turnover, not one of them is a keeper. And while we're on football and personnel changes, Chelsea parted company with their manager Thomas Tuchel today, their 11th manager in the same time period. According to my IFG colleagues, Tuchel's tenure, which started in January 2021, took in two prime ministers, three chancellors, three culture secretaries and five education secretaries. Admittedly, those statistics would be less dramatic if he'd quit just a couple of days earlier, though if he had, he'd probably be Secretary of State for Northern Ireland right now. <laughs> a big unresolved question is the role that will be played by one of the recent dominant forces in government, squatting like a giant toad across British politics, now that Liz Truss has taken over. Yes, what will happen to the IFG's ministerial resignations chart? Now, fans of Databytes will know it's been a long time since we sonified some data, that is, turned data into something approximating music. So here's a sonification of our ministerial resignation chart. Each beat you hear represents the start and end of a year in a particular premiership. Each ascending note is a resignation outside a reshuffle in that year. You should hopefully hear the difference between the steady stream under most PMs and then May and Johnson. So let's start with Thatcher. There really can be... Thank you. Uh, there really can be only one verdict on Johnson having lost so many ministers because of concern about standards and ethics in his government. That is a disgrace. Turning to tonight, our first presentation will come from Claire Edington, Head of Data Portfolio at the Central Digital and Data Office on CDDO's strategic roadmap for data. Then we'll hear from Alexis Castillo-Soto, Deputy Director for Digital and Data in the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy on its data management service. Joining us virtually will be Anna Price, Statistics Regulator and Health and Social Care Lead at the Office for Statistics Regulation on Reproducible Analytical Pipelines in Government. 
And our final speaker this evening will be Matt Kerlog, former Head of Data Innovation at Cabinet Office Analysis and Insight, on three things he's learned about being a data person in government. We'll be back on Wednesday the 5th of October, then the 1st of November, a Tuesday rather than our usual Wednesday, and then the 7th of December. Tonight's Data Bytes is unusual, not in terms of my introduction being rewritten up to the last moment, since that's just how British politics is now, but in not having a sponsor. We need sponsors to keep the series going. If you'd like your name up in lights and to get, and to get a speaking slot, get in touch with my colleague Pratesh. And if you're in government and would like to present or know someone who should, get in touch with me. That's more than enough from me this evening. Um, so it's my pleasure to hand over to our first speaker, Claire. Thanks, Gavin. Um, oh, let me get some slides. They'll come up in a second. Great. I'll just start talking. Oh, do we? Oh, I can't stop for the time. Is that cheating? We won't hold it against you if you do. We can get going. Um, I'm Claire Newton. It's great to be here. Um, I'm from the data team in the Central Digital and Data Office, um, and we are part of the Cabinet Office. Um, and we're headed up by Interim Chief Data Officer Sue Bateman, um, and we collaborate with uh, data specialists across government, and it's about making sure um, that standards and guidance are available to support all civil servants to share and use government data better. Um, and we work across the CDDO organisation as well to set strategy for the whole span of digital and technology, uh, of which data is just one part. Um, and we set out to make the whole system vibrate. So it's about working with data leaders, data specialists across government organisations within our policy reach to make those shared aims a reality. So in my remaining seven minutes and something seconds, I will hopefully give you a sense of what we're doing, what we say we're going to do, and how we are going to get there. Um, so uh, there we go. Um, this is a tale of two strategies. Um, and there was already a strategy at the party before Transforming for a Digital Future came along earlier this year. Um, and this OG is, of course, the National Data Strategy, or the NDS. Um, and without those intentions set out in September 2020, we wouldn't be here. Um, and mission three of the strategy, which is um, about government's use of data, set out 30 actions um, for data foundations across government which sit with us in the Cabinet Office. Um, and until recently, um, this mission three, um, there's another mission three coming. They're both called mission three. Doesn't make my job complicated at all. Um, it's formed the primary focus for our delivery and we found it's been a really great hook so far um, for that cross-government working, for those foundational actions needed um, for us to lead at the centre um, since we launched the strategy um, with DCMS back in 2020. Um, and some of the work that, ooh, there we go. Um, some of the work we've done so far um, there's all sorts of things, and I can't call them all out on, on one slide, and we'll make these available afterwards, um, but it includes just some of the highlights. Um, we created the Data Standards Authority um, and the strategy for that that, that was published on gov.uk last year. Um, the work we've done with the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation on the Algorithmic Transparency Standard, Databytes 25, uh, and the Data Sharing Governance Framework, which was Databytes 27. See, I did my footnoting. Uh, and we've also done work on the Data Sharing Governance Framework, and which we've had, the Data Sharing Playbook, um, which is where we're helping to troubleshoot some of the most complex data sharing cases in government with expert support from the centre. Uh, so in March this year, we had a stock take of the actions, um, and this is what we found. Um, I nearly did a slide that did a visualisation of this and realised it's basically two-thirds are, are either completed or, or closed. Um, it's a bit like if you were going to have two friends around for a cake and one of them didn't come and you ate their bit, 
you'd have eaten that many actions. Um, so uh, yeah, there's, it's been really great to just take stock of the process because I think so often with these things, we let them just rumble on and then another strategy comes in and we never really think about what we did. So it's really important to me and to the team that, that we're, we're taking stock and thinking, you know, some of those are closed and, and that's, you know, a bit controversial to say we didn't take them off, but sometimes things change. That's the right thing to do. Um, and it's some of those things, it's because we've built onto new and better things that, that are more aligned. Um, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. There's another strategy to come. Um, so we know that a strategic plan for data won't change digital government on its own any more than a strategic plan for service design or tech architecture or legacy IT. So in June, as CDDO, we published Transforming for a Digital Future. Uh, this is the government's 2022 to 2025 roadmap for digital and data. Um, this isn't the only strategic uh, show in town. We get other visitors to our list of strategic goals from time to time uh, from the National Audit Office. We had one from the Digital Economy Council, Treasury Committee minutes, um, as well as, you know, maybe some emergent priorities when ministers join our department and look at data and go, hmm, I'm sure there's something we could do about data sharing in government. Um, so this, but this really is our attempt as a relatively new organisation in CDDO to bring things together across that, that whole digital system, and it's the keystone of our strategic plans um, to 2025. Um, but I'll let you in on a secret, which is that I'm not a lifer in the civil service, um, and I know we're going to hear some reflections from, from Matt later on. Um, and everybody, everyone who knows me knows that I really love clarity, and I'm called Claire, and that's all quite neat. Um, and, and simple doesn't mean easy. It's not about making things easier, but it's about focus. Um, and I don't like that there are two data strategies in play at the moment. I don't like that there's a national data strategy and there's transforming for a digital future, which has got data in, in there at the end, roadmap for digital and data. Um, and I'm head of data portfolio, so it is my job to bring some clarity to the situation and say, well, how, how, how do we do it? Um, so they are great strategies. This isn't to say there's not, they're not both great. They absolutely are. Um, but I wanted to say a bit about what this means to the national data strategy, not just to go, oh, great, we've got a new one, so what? Um, and, and how we're organising our portfolio delivery going forward to keep that clear focus on what's really important. And, but also, how do we fetch everyone to do that? So... Yes, the National Data Strategy has laid some great foundations for a common understanding of the challenges government organisations face when it comes to data. Um, and with the new strategy, the NDS doesn't become dormant and it doesn't become superseded, but instead, this new strategy gives us that next focused arc of actions that will get us to 2025. Um, and it turns out we're quite adept at naming strategies. We do, we do quite a lot in the Cabinet Office. So transforming for a digital future does what it says on the tin. A transformed, more efficient digital government to provide better outcomes for everyone. Um, and in the strategy, um, we set out what we think the conditions for success will look like. Um, though doubtless they'll have changed by 2025. So I can see the timer ticking. So whistle-stop tour. Um, you've got transformed public services, you've got one login, you've got better data, another mission three, why did we not give it another number? I do not know. Secure, efficient and sustainable technology, skills, massively important right across the system, and then the system itself, what are those systemic things that will help us unlock uh, digital transformation? Um, nothing is siloed and everything is important um, for success. Um, so what's the plan? The data part, it's about better data to power decision making. You can... Um, hop onto Google and, and find the strategy, read about how um, we call on departments for some actions and we've co-created this with departments and organisations. Um, uh, but I'm here to talk about the plan for data. Um, this will be available afterwards so you can 
put it under your pillow and read it to your heart's content. Um, but essentially, we think there's probably four steps to take. And um, like all good strategic plans, things get vaguer as they get into the rear view or the front the horizon, the bit over there, um, because we're not there yet. And so you know, we, we'll get sharper as we get, as we get down the road. But first off, it's about defining the strategy. Um, tick. Um, hidden in the small print there, there's some stuff around creating community and governance to succeed, and that's really important because doing this is about people and about bringing people together around our purpose. That second one is where we are right now. It's about consensus and that word foundations again. And I feel a bit sorry for the word foundations here because um, it's really quite a meaty bit of work that's really going to get us into stages three and four in the right place. And what it really means is bringing people together to agree what we mean about things like data criticality and data ownership and you know, establishing data architecture principles. Um, we get to stage three. Um, we put folks on metadata there. Probably not entirely fair. There'll be an awful lot going on. Um, but it's about, you know, we've done the work to agree how catalogs and standards are going to, you know, operate. And this is really getting that to happen. And, and it's, it's why, why it's important to do it and getting the metadata requirements in place. And then at the end, on this bit of adventure over on the, the end of the road, um, what we're agnostically calling a data marketplace, this is really, really where we see things coming together. Um, and as you'll know, there's a number of data sharing initiatives across government, including ONS's integrated data service, our work with GDS um, on the government data exchange. Who knows what else we'll be talking about um, in a couple of years' time. Um, but for us in CDDO, um, it means that we'll have helped facilitate some of that interoperability across government that we're looking for. Um, there's a slide about governance in the pack, but I knew I was never going to get this in in the eight minutes. Um, that's about fetching everyone. Um, if you're as nerdy as I'm about um, portfolio management, you're also probably nerdy about governance. So if you want to ask me in the Q&A about why it's important we fetch everybody, how we're doing that across government, I hope if you're from government in the room, you, you recognise some of these bodies and we have representatives from your organisations. If not, come chat to me afterwards. It's really important. Um, lots of acronyms and stuff, but I just wanted to put that up there to demonstrate how we see our different bits of governance around this coming together. Um, so it is about fetching everyone, um, and hopefully this shows you that we've got a plan. So thanks very much. Thank you very much, Claire. Um, do you think about your questions? I'll come to the uh, in the building audience second this time around, so I will go to the virtual audience first. Uh, for those of you online, you can use the Slido to submit your questions. If you're not already on the Slido page, it's bit.ly slash Slido DB33. Um, so I'll start with a big question that's coming online, Claire, from uh, Sam from MedConfidential. Evening to you, Sam. Um, I thought somebody would ask this one. What do you expect to change under the new Prime Minister and what already has? Wow. There's a lot that I can't say, I think, because I'd like a job. <laughs> the job that I've got is great. Thank you. Um, I mean, this will be a cop-out. I mean, it was always going to be a cop-out, wasn't it? Um, but we're really focused on data in government and, and working with organisations on the way that they're set up to, to manage the data capability in their organisation. What people have they got? And how is data helping them, you know, do do the things that they set out to do? You know, data in and of itself is is you know a lot of us really enjoy it, but it it's there to help us do other stuff better and deliver better services, um, and and do all the other things that we do for citizens. So, um, you know, priorities change with with new ministers, don't they? But all, all stay the same, um, and and we're still doing our best to get behind that within organisations. 
Great, thank you. I'll come to the audience in the building next. Wait for the mic to come from you, uh, to you. Keep it short uh, and do tell us who you are if you can, but remember you are on the record. Uh, we've, got, uh, we've got a question there. I'll come to you next time around. And, yeah. um, hi, Ben Hawes. I'm, I'm wondering about local government, the local public sector. Um, what are you doing to make sure that they, they get comparable help? Um, previous waves of uh, government digital transformation have, have focused rather heavily on central government departments and, and much, you know, much less has been made available, I think, even though local public sector is the, the services people use most. Uh, just to say as well, we've got a question from Juliet Whitworth online, which is exactly that as well. To what extent do you involve local government in your programmes? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a great question and we often get a similar question about bigger organisations that are not considered part of the centre, for example, the NHS. Um, and uh, the unhelpful answer is it's not always within our gift with the scope that we're given um, within our organisation. Um, the more helpful answer is there are things that we are doing to build community across government and a lot of the frameworks and standards that we set, like the data sharing governance framework, for example, contain lots of best practice and ways to do things and the data ethics framework is another example of that um, that are of benefit to organizations inside and outside of, of the public sector thanks uh, let's stay in the room we'll go to you next hi i'm vincenzo rampula uh, i wanted to pick up on just something you said around uh, helping departments do what they want to do with data uh, and i just wondered to what extent have they got a plan or an idea of what they want to do with data? Just finished a stint at Bayes, which was looking at uh, something called smart data, which is about personalized, uh, personal data sharing. Uh, and I think one of the things the majority of stakeholders were crying out for is access to public data, but a lot of departments didn't seem to have thought through how that could happen, what, what might happen, stuff like that. So who's helping them think through that, that strategy? Yeah, absolutely, and I think when we work with different departments and organisations across government, we see different levels of maturity, um, and you might have one department that's very strong in the data capability in their organisation, but there might be one aspect of that that, that is less mature. Um, so one of the things we're, we're putting in place is a data maturity matrix to help organisations um, at, at the helping them to work out where they're at and what the gaps might be and also what gaps are important to them you know with their mission they might not need a certain a certain aspect of that um uh but yeah it's it's a it's a it's a great point and i think it's one of the things that we're really keen to do is grow a community uh, not just a community on on slack and kind of lunch and learns and things but also what's you know the chief data officers council isn't just there to provide a bit of governance around stuff it's so that there's a peer group and visibility across that matrix across government so that uh, a rising tide can, can bring all boats with it. Excellent. I'll go online next for our first anonymous question of the evening. Good evening to you, anonymous. Um, they say colleagues in DHSC face similar questions and their solution or their ALB solution is to spend 360 million or more on Palantir. Any thoughts on that approach? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I could say that every department is, is its own uh, organisation with its own approach and strategy for um, how it spends its, its money. Um, I think there's, you know, skills is so important and, and my colleagues in the DDAC capability, digital data technology capability team in CDDO do some amazing work to help build that and support government departments to build capability in-house. Um, 
skills is a real issue in the sector at the moment. It's not, you know, that's no secret. <laughs> it's, not, it's not breaking news. Um, so, so there is a challenge and we need to deliver at pace for people. So it, I think there'll always be a balance there. Thanks. Um, we've got a question there and then I've got one down the front and another one, another one down the front. So, yeah. I think you met me, Gavin. Thanks. Uh, Akash Pan from Institute for Government. Um, so building on the questions you've had already about working with local government, I was similarly interested in the extent to which or whether at all there was engagement with the devolved administrations, um, it being a sort of common refrain of IFG and other reports that both cooperation in around policy making and um, standardization and, and sharing of, of data could certainly be improved um, across the four nations. Yeah, it's really important. And in fact, we had our devolved administration advisory forum for the national data strategy today. So it's a great time to ask the question. Um, and again, it's about the things that we don't touch with the policies that we set and our boundaries, but it is about everyone's welcome in the community. Um, so we have a lot there's, you know, in the standards and frameworks that we set. Sometimes there's a lot that um, colleagues across borders can take from that, but also we have loads to learn. Um, and in terms of data sharing across those boundaries, it gets trickier the, the more boundaries we have to cross, the better we all get at examining those boundaries, getting sometimes braver in line with the risk around data sharing. And I know it's a conversation, I know data leaders across government have a lot. Um, I don't see people burying their head in the sand, I just see people wanting to make more data sharing happen where it's the right thing to do. Um, and and it, it's trickier across, across those boundaries, but I think you know, there's, there's good relationships there at our level um, about, about sharing what works um, and, and staying in touch and making sure that everyone can benefit where there's things to benefit from. Great, thank you. I want to get the final two from the audience in. So this, this front row first and we'll come to you next. So please keep, keep things short. Thank you, I'll try to be quick. I'm Catherine Perster. Until recently, I was head of data strategy at the Department for Work and Pensions. Um, I think the CDDO has brought great new impetus to what's already been quite a long and challenging journey, but you alluded to some of the challenges that sit around the fact that separation of data strategy that sits with, with DCMS and CDDO and also, of course, GDS. I wondered if you could, in the last few seconds, reflect yeah. a little bit on the benefits and drawbacks of having those three separate organisations focused on the yeah. next stage of data strategy. Really happy to. And let's talk more after because my role sits absolutely the crux of that and why do we need a head of data portfolio in CDDO we might not have a head of something else portfolio because the data policy landscape has all of these different bits and because government's use of data as distinct to the rest of the national data strategy with DCMS is internal to government and a bit less shiny sometimes and and things but there's loads to do um, and yeah CDDO is a really young organization April last year um, still forming that identity, having been plucked from, from GDS, but we also have identities from other places like knowledge, information, records management. And it's about, you know, how do we um, make the most of the, the synergies and all the things that we know, but, but also it's about clarity and it's about scope. And the number of people who email me and they get a response from me saying, this is about government's use of data, please talk to DCMS. And it's the most helpful thing sometimes to go, there is a purpose to our structure. So if we stick to it, we can really focus on what matters. Very quick question, very quick answer. Um, service standard doesn't actually uh, consider data all that much. It doesn't ask service owners to think about data architecture and the role of data science at the start of building services. Do you know if that's going to be looked at? 
great question and give me your email and I'll get you an answer. <laughs> That's a good short answer, isn't it? <laughs> I, I did say short, that was perfect. Um, well, Claire, thank you very much indeed. And uh, sorry to those of you online whose excellent questions I didn't have time to ask. Um, our next speaker is Alexis. Hello, everyone. Uh, managed to navigate getting there and not falling down, so I feel happy. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about um, the data management service. So this is a service that we've actually built, we've used, um, and we will pick up the point about Bayes uh, later on, but we will cover it because it's actually one of the first things that um, I wanted to sort of cover for ourselves, which is we don't have a joined-up approach, and I will guarantee that most departments, most offices, or if, if I asked you all individually, both in the room and virtually, can you describe what data means, I'd get a different answer. And that's probably the first challenge. We all have a different interpretation of what data is. We all have different ways of analyzing data. And ultimately, we actually, data is part of a service. So we have different service owners. So they interpret their data in a different way. And one of the big things, or one of the challenges when I came to Bayes was, and again, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything new here, there's been multiple data strategies, as I'm sure there have been in your organizations. The challenge is how do you make it come to life? That was our big challenge. And actually I took a, a I was told, a strange approach, which is a nice, polite way in civil service to say you're crazy, uh, of not writing a strategy at the start. Because the hardest thing was trying to convince people and winning hearts and minds when it came to data. So we took a different approach. And one of the big things that we started to look at was that actually consensus is really difficult to build when you talk at a high level. Actually, consensus when you talk about something small is quite easier to get to. And actually, so we, we took a reverse approach. We started to look at different uh, ways. So I'll, I'll highlight some of our project, um, project objectives. One of the, the key things that we wanted to do was, you know, people like talking about data, people like talking about the shiny stuff, the AI, the ML, wouldn't it be great? It's gonna fix everything. It's not. It's gonna tell you how bad your data is, but you don't wanna know that. So actually, let's go and look at some different technology that will tell me that they're actually going to give me the right piece. And one of the key things that I started out was, was we actually stopped talking about data. We actually turned that around and said, what's the service? What is it that, what's your outcome? What do you want to deliver? Let us worry about the data, not because it's not important, but because we have to take you on a journey. And the journey is both from a technical perspective and also from a uh, understanding of data. One of the key things that we looked at as well was that people started to worry, the data hoarders. I'm sure, again, this expression is not new. It's my data, I don't want to share it. I know what it does. But if you ask them to explain what their data does, nine out of 10 people probably couldn't because someone else did it and they inherited it, but they know it's right. What, what do you use it for? Well, I've been using it and now I've added more data. So actually one of the key things that we started to think about was data lineage. That confuses most of our colleagues straight away. Well, what do you mean? So we started to remove the, the conversation from data 
and data lineage. All the things that we know that are important to those of us that do like data, maybe passionately, but actually trying to describe it in a different way. So we took the approach. This won't seem strange to you. In fact, some would call this ETL, but not described as ETL. Why was that important? It was extremely important because people, we needed to take them to, on that journey to understand the differences of the data that they had and actually what they wanted to deliver. Because again, there was a good chance that what they wanted to deliver, they didn't have the right data for in the first place. So actually it was always going to be doomed uh, for failure unless we took them to understand why data was really important. So we looked at some of the areas and we looked at, um, again, uh, told, uh, took a different approach, took a punt, and invested some money ourselves into areas where there were challenges. Um, there was this thing that happened a few years ago, I don't know if you remember it, it was called COVID. Uh, it's been in the press, don't know if you've forgotten about it. And one of the key things was, as a department, we, we did loads of loans. And actually, went to local authorities. And local authorities always had that challenge of how did they return the data to us. But the challenge was always seen as, local authorities don't return the right data to us. We can't produce the right data, so we'll write something on top of the data that we received. Okay, that gives you an answer, but actually probably not the right thing. So we took a different approach. We started to look at actually what did the teams want and actually how did people use our services? So we did this thing called user research, again, digital. We took that approach to, to look at and ask some people about what their challenges were. We developed a very, very simple conceptual architecture. This is as, as technical as we got with our teams. The reason behind that was that as soon as we started talking here, everyone started losing themselves in what they meant. So I'll guarantee, depending on what technology you use, you're looking for Python. Why isn't our shiny there? Why isn't that there? And what we found was actually, didn't matter what we put up there, people tried to make constructive uh, builds on it, is what I would call it. But we all know what they were looking for is my bit isn't there. So we looked at different ways of trying to get them to understand it. So we then changed our approach to that. So we used this process for our local authorities, which was they would log in, they would upload the data, and based on the user research, we actually found out that the reason they couldn't provide some of the some local authorities, not all, I might add, had challenges with actually providing the data to us because they had another system. So how could we help them help us? One of the key things we started was actually doing an automated check at the front. Not an automated check saying, your data's wrong. Line 52, cell 4, that's wrong. So we were able to give local authorities that ability. Now, we launched that. Guess what? No one used it. No one realized that until they started using it more regularly. And then we were very clear about not pushing stuff because we wanted, actually, local authorities to tell each other rather than us telling them you could use this. But we did it on one specific loan. We did it on one specific journey. Because guess what? They came back and said, well, actually, you need to build this you need to build that. And never before had we had that information because we started to listen to what they were doing and actually build it iteratively because we started small.
We're on phase two of our roadmap. I won't bore you with it because you'll see the slides. But there are a couple of things that I wanted to say that were uh, really important that I wanted to bring out. The data conversation, the nodding dogs. How many times have you been in a room talking about data and everyone's doing that? Yeah, yeah, I really understand that. And what we found were particularly with non-data literate people is they didn't want to be embarrassed about not knowing data. So we didn't talk about data. We talked about the service, we talked about the outcome, we talked about what they needed or what they wanted. And actually we started, because we built it slow, we, we built up some of those, those services and got really good at some stuff. And then we're able to cookie cutter all of that approach into new services. So our delivery time frame got smaller and smaller and smaller because we were able to build components. Wasn't right all the time. I'm sure you'll see this with all other people, data governance, you know, the process, how do you get people to agree stuff? Skills, I'm sure all of us are going to mention data skills. But it's both. It's data skills and data education from our perspective. We have built, we have the capability to build all this stuff. And the last thing I'd say, because I've run out, is the tech bit is probably the easiest bit. It's the fleshy humans that get in the way. That's it. Thank you very much, Alexis. Um, just a reminder to those of you watching us online, you can put your questions to Alexis via Slido. If you're not already there, it's bit.ly slash slidodb33. You'll all be saying that with me by the end of the event. Um, I'm going to go to um, our audience in the room first this time. So who would like to ask the first question? A few of you are definitely thinking about it. We've got a question here. Patrick King, CGI. Just curious to understand why you selected Azure in the Microsoft stack over what else is on the market. Why not was our, our approach. Um, we had the opportunity to look at the tech um, and we never had that discussion with our colleagues. Um, we think that there are a number of technologies at work. There are a number of service providers that do the job. Our biggest challenge was trying to get our colleagues to understand data. So the tech bit you could swap that out with somebody else, whether it's AWS, whether it's something else. But for me, that's probably the bigger challenge. It's actually taking them on the journey. We didn't go in and start saying, well, this bit's better than that bit. We just said they need the service. Thanks. Uh, next question, I'll stay in the room. Yes. Hi, Harun here from Tech. Um, is there a reason you didn't follow sort of a GDS discovery type approach, or did you? We did. We did take a, a discovery approach. We did, in effect, deliver it as an agile project from a digital perspective. What we were keen to do was not deliver it as a data project. Um, we were very key uh, and to manage our colleagues was to get feedback from other people that were using the service. Ultimately, within our department, we use data, but that data isn't necessarily ours. It's provided to us whether it's free, whether we pay for it, or whether someone gives us that data. And if you don't know how they are going to provide the data to you, there is no, doesn't matter what we do at this end if we don't understand that journey. So it was really important for us to take that sort of digital services approach rather than taking a data approach. Thanks. Um, we'll stay in the room, I think. 
anyone want to ask a question? Uh, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll have a follow-up. <laughs> I'm going to test my answer. Sorry, I'm just you? keen. <laughs> uh, no, it's not knowledge. I, th I think um, what I'm wondering is you've done really good work there, clearly. You sort of concentrate on the users rather than the data, and mm. just keeping that out of the room is really important. Uh, from my perspective, I'm just thinking about, okay, you've done a really good thing. How does it scale? How do you scale up? Especially when you said, you know, that. Yep. there's a skills gap and yep. there's data literacy issues, there's governance issues, those, all those things as base. How do you plan on scaling this? So we, are, we have more demand than we can deliver on, right? That's our biggest challenge. Um, our biggest challenge isn't necessarily sometimes the in small sort of a turn, the money. It's actually how you use the money um, in a, the correct way to enable you to build out. So obviously we've picked a cloud technology, so scale isn't a problem for us. Ingestion isn't a problem for us. We've looked at some of our new policies that have been announced, some that haven't, and how do we get the data from third parties. So all of that capability is now there. That's, that's the huge advantage. Before we didn't have that capability to connect. And we're not saying we are the only answer, we're saying we're part of the ecosystem. That's the difference. We're not saying thou shalt use this service. We're saying we are part of the ecosystem that can enable you to deliver your service. And just coming back to a previous point about which technology is better, it doesn't matter. It's about getting the data and making sure you have the right data to make the right choices. Uh, Anonymous uh, online uh, is interested if you think that something like data steward training or similar might be useful alongside software stack. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think the biggest challenge with that is explaining what that means to people. Um, people run away from being owners of services until it goes wrong because they want to blame someone else. The ownership or the stewardship means you have to invest your time. And that, I would argue, is probably one of the biggest challenges is understanding the worth of the product that you have to enable you to go, actually, this is quite important. I have to invest in it. It's no longer a spreadsheet that sits in a corner on some file. It's actually bigger than that. Thanks. Now I'll come back to the room for the next one. I've got one there. <laughs> Thanks, Julian McRae. <coughs> Sorry. Um, I'm just uh, interested in governance. You came up uh, a few times mm -hmm. in your comments. How does the governance structure work, both for yourselves, but also in the rest of the department about the quality of the analysis and the work they're doing, drawing on those data services? Sure, so we have built um, slow, so we've used the business process in effect to manage our governance, because we're using simple services. What we are now merging into is actually going, why do you have something different when this works? So that's always been the biggest challenge. Whenever we've got into a room, particularly when you talk about data is, how do you name something? Is it a capital? Isn't it a capital? Is it an underscore? Well, I use it this way. But once you have a live service, that was the thing that was the, the winner for us. Something tangible that people could see and are using changes that whole sort of um, process for us. Because we're no, lo no longer talking about the theory. We're going, well, here's a service that's working. If you only just did this and tweaked yours, you could have the service nearly free, I would say. Not free, but nearly free and quicker and more effective and more efficient. Why would you say no? Some people do, by the way, but you know. Thanks, we've got a question from James. Good evening to you, James. Uh, how have you managed engagement across other departments, agencies, and wider organizations to build confidence <coughs> in data sharing? 
So we are fortunate within Bayes that um, within the uh, DDAP functions, our CDIO has um, a network. So we, we talk to all of our CDIOs uh, that range from the Met Office and others. Um, and we have basically said, here's what we've done. It could work for you, or you can use this as a service. Ultimately, we are not there to um, sort of force you to go down that route. It is really important that people understand the value that's the important bit, not the data bit, the value of why it makes sense to come through here. So we've done a number of engagements. We've offered it to a number of our partner orgs, which will remain nameless. Um, but also, we're not interested in your data in hosting or processing. We just want to access it to, to do what we need to do to get the answer that we need, but also have the understanding of how we came to the answer. That's important to us. The data lineage and how we got to that conclusion is more important than hosting all the data. Thanks. We've got another question online from Vinod. Um, when you start from the users, how do you ensure that matches the policy and strategy set by the people higher up? It doesn't. Quite frankly, it doesn't. And, you know, I'm not telling anything. You all giggled in the room. It is fact. You know, sometimes we all go away and think the what if because it's theoretical. And actually, most of the time when you engage a user, it doesn't matter if it's a data service or a digital service, they tell you they do something a certain way, but you sit and watch them and you go, you're not doing what you tell me you say how you work. The key thing is being adaptive and showing the reasoning. And that's the big thing. It's not saying we're doing, we're changing the what, it's how. We're changing the how, not the what. So the outcome's the same, but how we deliver it is different. Uh, final 30 seconds, I'll take a final question from in the room. Otherwise, you'll be subjected to me asking one right at the back there. Nicola Jopling. Um, just from a human handling perspective, how did you break through that fear that people have about sort of exposure um, and the nodding dog and the sort of use of the same old language over and over again? How did you kind of break through that? Uh, it wasn't once. It took a while. It took a lot of convincing, and actually, I would argue, uh, everyone will remain nameless in this, in this scenario, that the non-data people were more comfortable than the data people. Because we're not questioning their understanding, we're not questioning their knowledge, we're just questioning the how they've done it. And anyone that works in data or any other um, piece, that's quite hard to take a challenge because they are seen as the expert and we're not challenging their expertise we're just questioning the why so that we can help them help us really interesting note on which to end thank you very much alexis thank you so we're going to go virtual now for our next speaker and that is anna who hopefully joins us now uh hello edinburgh this is london calling can you hear us Hello, London. This is Edinburgh. Um, I'm assuming you can hear me and that you can also see my slides. We can indeed. Perfect. Uh, thank you so much. So, yeah, I'm Anna Price. Um, I lead the health and social care team at the Office for Statistics Regulation. And I am also a RAP enthusiast. Now, I'm not just talking about rap music, although Really, I'm actually more of a musical theatre person, as you'll see throughout this presentation. 
Um, I'm also talking about reproducible analytical pipelines. Before I come on to talk about RAP, a quick introduction to OSR. We are the independent regulator of official statistics across the UK, and our statutory remit is to promote and safeguard the production and publication of statistics. We don't produce any statistics ourselves, and we're separate from the Office for National Statistics. Now, everyone working in government has to have a favourite acronym, and underpinning all of OSR's work is ours. And it's the three principles of our code of practice which sets the standards for statistics published by and on behalf of governments. And that's trustworthiness, quality and value, or TQB. And you're going to hear these a lot for the next six and a half minutes or so, as you will in basically every presentation that we give. Um, I thought it'd be helpful to also define what RAP is. Um, so. RAP is about the overall approach taken to carrying out analysis. And in the past, there has sometimes been a misconception that this is just about coding or about automation. And RAP absolutely does involve both of those things, but it's a lot more than that too. It's really a set of principles which ensure that analysis is reproducible, auditable, efficient and high quality. So if you're a visual person, you can imagine introducing RAP to a traditional analytical process to be a bit like moving from the picture on the left to the picture on the right. If you're someone who likes a list, then I've got you covered here too. So as well as using code and automation to carry out analysis, a RAP will involve things in the list on the right, like peer review, code management and publishing code. Now, when people hear our name, they sometimes assume that we just work on official statistics, but actually we're really interested in other types of data and analysis too. And a couple of examples of our work in this area are uh, some guidance that we published recently on developing and using models in government um, introduced in a really excellent blog that I've linked to here by my colleague, Emily. And we're also carrying out a project at the moment looking at data sharing and linkage across governments. And our interest in RAP also fits into this area. And that's because RAP is, is really much wider than just official statistics. The, the principles of RAP are applicable to any type of analysis. We became aware of RAP at OSR shortly after the first development of one in 2017. And we've been championing its use ever since. But we also knew through our regulatory work that some producers were facing challenges implementing the approach. So last year we published a review which explored the current use of RAP principles across the UK's statistical system. And what we wanted to do was identify what enabled successful implementation and to understand what was preventing analysts from implementing RAP principles. And what we found was a bit of a mixed picture. So we found some really excellent examples of RAP and there are lots of those examples and some case studies in our report. But we also find that overall, the pace of change to adopt RAP principles was slow. And where RAP principles were being used, what we found was that they supported the highest standards of the code of practice. 
So starting with trustworthiness. Trustworthiness really comes from organisations being open. Um, and RAP requires, whenever possible, that code used for analysis is published. This increases transparency, opening up underlying processes and methodologies, showing what was done and why, letting others see how the analysis was made, in other words. It also means that code can uh, have external scrutiny applied to it and, and be peer reviewed. And even when it's not possible to make code public, an internally hosted platform can be used to share code within an organisation so that analysts can see and learn from each other's work outside of their immediate team. RAP principles help to improve the quality of analysis um, in a few different ways. So absolutely removing manual processes helps to reduce the risk of errors. But also the approach to code management, so using version control software, means that an audit trail exists. So the progression of the development of code can be seen who uh, and when were changes made. It also means that you can go back to previous versions of the code if you need to. And finally, value. So value is all about users and making sure that analysis is insightful, useful and easy to access. And RAP enhances the value of analysis in lots of different ways, but the one that I wanted to pick out today is about enabling reuse of data. So technical users quite often need access to data that's uh, in a simple, unformatted structure and stored in a machine-accessible format. And this is also one of the requirements of a RAP process, which means that the data used in, RAP, in a RAP process can be easily shared and published almost as a byproduct to support those users that want to do their own analysis. And so for all of these reasons and many more, our vision is simple. We want RAP principles to be the default approach to analytical work across government, not just for official statistics, but for other types of analysis too. And our aim is to help support producers in achieving this. And with that in mind, we made a number of recommendations in our 2021 report. Things like developing a consistent shared understanding of what RAP is and what it involves across government, setting a strategic direction for the use of RAP in government, and supporting analysts through increased training and mentoring opportunities. And it's really great to see a huge amount of progress since our report. So uh, the development of a minimum standard of RAP for the analysis function has really helped with that shared understanding of what RAP is. And um, there's been the introduction of new courses on RAP and RAP related skills. And um, so the example I've got here, um, I'd really recommend it's an hour long introduction to RAP course. And um, so either something to go away and have a look at yourself after this, or something to share with colleagues for um, a really nice introduction to RAP. And it's great to see wider endorsement for RAP. So uh, earlier in the year, one of the key recommendations in the Goldacre review of health data in England was that RAP should be the standard for all health analysis in academia and in the NHS. But the development that I want to highlight and just finish on um, is the publication a couple of months ago of an analysis function RAP strategy. And this is a really ambitious strategy that aims to embed RAP as the default approach to analysis in government. 
Um, and the strategy focuses on three goals, tools, capability and culture and sets out how that aim will be achieved. It's got some great practical advice for analysts too. We really look forward to seeing further progress on RAP over the next few years. And now I look forward to answering any questions that you have. Thank you, Anna. Excellent. I'll come to the room again for the first question in a second. Again, if you're watching us online, you can submit questions using Slido, bit.ly slash Slido DB33 if you're not already there. Um, Will has asked a general question, which is, will the slides shown in the four presentations be shared after this excellent event? That's very kind. Um, we are very much hoping to publish them, but do get in touch um, if you want to uh, get hold of the slides as well. So, um, Anna, we can see you. Excellent. Um, let me take the first question from in the room, and we've got one down here at the front. Hello, thanks Anna for that. It's really great to hear. Um, you'd mentioned a little bit the re review you'd done to understand the barriers to adoption of RAP, and I wonder if you could go into a little bit more detail about what those are and how you're addressing them, and I presume some of it is about that tools, capability and culture work you just referenced, but would you give us a little bit more on that? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, in our report, we kind of break things down into three three stages um, that start with kind of making that initial decision to, uh, you know, whether or not you're going to implement RAP through to actually building a RAP at the end. Um, so, it's kind of a three-stage process of, yeah, we think this is a good idea, then, okay, how do we go about planning to to achieve this uh, goal and then the kind of practical implementation of a wrap um, and yes i would say the the barriers that we found um are kind of similar to those three aims that i mentioned in the strategy so things around culture um you know needing a kind of supportive innovative environment um, so that people have the kind of time and space um, and are encouraged to, to carry out developments all the way through to the kind of more practical bits at the end, like having the right tools available. Um, and actually, that's a barrier which um, we've kind of seen decline as a problem over the last couple of years. Thanks. We've got a few questions coming in online. So one from Anonymous. Um, picking up on your reference to the Goldacre review, would the OSR have any expectations around one part of the NHS charging other parts of the NHS for access to wraps? And I suppose there's a broader question there about access to wraps between uh, different organisations. Yeah, so I guess a couple of things. Um, from OSR's perspective, we really champion kind of free and equal access to, to data um, and statistics. So that's, you know, a kind of underpinning uh, principle that, that we really strongly advocate for. Um, but I guess another part of RAP that speaks to this is the um, encouragement to publish the code behind a RAP. So there will absolutely be times where the code that's been used to build a RAP can't be published for a kind of uh, security or confidentiality issue. But actually, most of the time what we find is that the reason that code isn't published is that there maybe isn't access to the platform to publish, or there's a bit of nervousness about 
maybe someone will be really mean about the code that I wrote. And we absolutely get that and we understand that hesitancy. Um, but the, the kind of publishing of code where possible and, and that openness is something that is a really fundamental part of RAP and brings a lot of the benefits that you see using RAP and like transparency, collaboration. Great, thank you. Uh, I'll come back into the room for the next question. Hands up if you'd like to ask it. Anyone? Um, in which case, I will go to uh, my colleague Pratesh, who's asked a question online. Uh, great presentation, says Pratesh. Uh, RAP seems eminently sensible. Have you had any pushback? If so, what and why? And if you can say, from whom? I think there, there, we have seen pushback in from different places and for different reasons. Um, so I think one example would be the time that it takes to create a wrap. So there is an upfront investment when you build a wrap. Um, and if analysts, as they usually are, are busy, have a lot of... Um, kind of business as usual churn to get through, then it can be really difficult to find that space um, to, to make developments. So there can be pushback um, either from analysts themselves or from managers about the time that it might take. Um, what we've seen is that while there is upfront development time needed, in the long run, you're going to benefit from that, not just that more efficient process, but all of the other benefits that come from implementing RAP. Um, so that's one example. Other examples maybe would be um, a kind of nervousness around learning a new skill um, and, and that's really a kind of cultural thing um, and bringing people with you so that nobody feels kind of left out or left behind. Great, thank you. Um, I've got another question online from Bruce Jackson at UKRI. Evening to you, Bruce. Um, the Goldacre Review recommends the application of RAP to health data for research. Um, do you believe the principles should encompass broader parts of the research landscape? And if so, what do you believe are the challenges to realising this vision? Yeah, I mean, I think we'd love to see RAP just used for any analysis anywhere. Um, but the challenges will be the same, uh, you know, in other sectors as they are in the public sector. And those are the things that I've mentioned around kind of a culture of development and innovation, access to the right tools, and um, skills, training, mentoring. Great. Uh, I'll come back into the room for the next question. Hands up. Yeah. Hi, um, I was just wondering, are there any sort of central government evangelists of RAP? There are, there, there are many. <laughs> um, so there is a central team um, in the analysis function, um, which is there to offer support. Um, I think they do offer some kind of mentoring support. That's also the team that created the uh, course that I mentioned in the slides. Um, but they also run what's called the RAP Champions Network. Um, and that's a network um, across government um, and, and across the UK. And so, yeah, if you're looking to become a RAP, um, uh, champion, then that would be the place to look. Great. Any more questions in the room? Um, you touched on this uh, at the end of your presentation, Anna, but um, what, what are the main changes that have happened since um, the OSR's report in 2021? Yes, yeah, so I think the 
biggest change is the publication of the strategy. And I think that really matters because one of the things that we found in our report was that there's only so much that kind of bottom-up approach to implementing RAP can achieve. So we saw examples where, um, you know, you'd have really enthusiastic, excellent analysts um, kind of taking an initiative in their team, introducing a RAP, but then really struggling to get that kind of organisation or department-wide um, pick up and what that really needs is is the combination of like a bottom up approach and a top down approach and um, so yeah I do think that that uh, development of a strategy for the analysis function um, is probably the biggest change um, and something that, that's really exciting. Great we've got time for a final quick question. Yes. Um. Are you considering anything around data ethics when you're looking at RAP, or is that just not part of the remit? Um, I mean, data ethics is definitely something that we're really interested in at OSR, um, and I guess it probably feels a bit separate because RAP is quite a lot about the process, um, but you know, it's going to be applicable to any analysis that you do. So um, I suppose they come hand in hand um, and it's something that we definitely are thinking about at OSR generally beyond just RAP. Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed. And as um, Anonymous has just said online, thanks for the Hamilton earworms. Um, no problem. Glad that you didn't throw away your shot. And uh, I hope that uh, you'll be back to update us on that work at some other point. So Anna, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Kevin. Well, that's a wrap for our third speaker, um, which brings us to our final speaker of the evening, and that is Matt. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, oh, slides are not yet up, but I don't need them to start with. Um, there we go. Uh, so, hi, I'm Matt Kerlock. I'm a dataholic, a long-time Databytes fan, um, but first-time speaker. Um, until the end of July, I was a senior analyst in the Cabinet Office, and, but as the Joe Lysett to Gavin's Laura Queensburg, I'm going to mess slightly with the Databytes format, and rather than talk about specific projects I've been involved in, provide three provocations uh, that come from reflecting on my 15 and a half years in, in government. Now, I can't really come to Databytes and not have any data, um, so here's a chart of my life that I made the other day. Um, still half of it is not actually in work, which is nice, makes me feel young. Um, I also reflected on, connected to the, the Prime Minister thing, uh, during my career and working, I've had, there have been six Prime Ministers, there were only three when I was a child and at school, uh, so we've had double the number. Um, but my first job was uh, working as a, as a researcher in um, a consultancy, but largely based in London Borough of Hackney. And then in 2006, I joined government uh, as a civil servant, first in HMRC, then in the Cabinet Office, where I set up a small thing called the Civil Service People Survey. Um, I then took a career break after talking to permanent secretaries about well-being. Uh, I needed to do some of my own. Uh, went to the OECD for a little while uh, to talk about public sector innovation, and then came back to the Cabinet Office uh, to my same division, but doing some work on uh, sort of a strategy uh, analysis, and then most recently uh, leading a data innovation team um, to uh, promote new uh, code-based approaches to, to analysis. And then uh, in August, I uh, decided to leave the civil service, um, and I don't really know what I'm doing next. <laughs> Supposedly, I'm being a freelancer. Um, but anyway, but I've always 
struggled with my professional identity. Um, I'm a geographer, st sociologist, and statistician by academic training. I joined government as part of the government social research profession, but in the last few years, I've been more connected to the data science community. Besides these professional descriptors, they don't really sort of, there's probably better words that describe my uh, time in government, um, be it a survey specialist, a PowerPoint prettifier, or the person that solves coding problems. Um, but there's one common thread, which is that I'm a person that does things with data, more specifically collects and analyzes data, uh, which leads me to the first point I want to make. Data does not equal analysis. Um, I don't think that comes as a surprise to anyone here. Picking up on a uh, point that Alexis made, the word data means too many things to too many people. Um, and as a result, people talk across purposes when they talk about data in government, especially people who don't have a background in data or analysis. Too often I've heard refrains from non-specialists that if only we get all the data together, get more data, get the right data, we will have an answer to the problem, as though, data, as though if data in its, of itself can provide answers. Make no mistake, the increasing availability and fidelity of data is no bad thing in government, but I think that we're at risk of losing an appreciation of two very different uses of data in government. Firstly, data for operational delivery of public services, um, and secondly, data for policy analysis and development. My concern is that as we increasingly digitise services, government's understanding of data is driven more and more by that first purpose, um, and sometimes forgetting that second uh, bit. That isn't to say we can't or shouldn't make use of new streams of data for policy analysis, but a slight uh, aberration of this, dashboards do not equal analysis. <laughs> an unfortunate side effect of the, of the COVID pandemic is an outbreak in the Cabinet Office, at least, of dashboard fever. <laughs> Like magpies, senior officials and ministers get distracted by shiny things, and so everything now needs to have a dashboard. And all we need are some weirdos and misfits that can make dashboards showing all the data will be able to manage everything from a single room in Downing Street. <laughs> dashboards can be a useful presentation tool. The PHE, UKSHA, coronavirus dashboard is an excellent example of this and how to do it right. Um, and better use of more frequent management information for delivery of public services is a very important evolution as perhaps is also making some of that information public on something called a performance platform on gov.uk. We might have maybe uh, not had as many problems with the passports and driving licenses if we saw the, the MI from the passport office uh, and the EVLA. But policy making, while data is necessary, uh, precursor, analysis is essential. The rise in dashboards and automated analytics risks minimizing that crucial next step, the need to review, analyze, and distill data into a proper understanding of the policy problem or consideration of potential solutions. Dashboard fever leads to the idea that answers to policy problems are self-evident if only we look at the data. It can lead to us forgetting that data is a social construct. It's not neutral and unbiased. What data we collect and how we collect it is as much a function of specific choices deliberate or otherwise, um, as the analysis that we choose to do. And despite the rise of dashboard fever among social officials and ministers, most analysts still face technological challenges in giving their policy customers interactive outputs. Along, not only that, also you get a demand for PDF. It's, it doesn't matter that like, you make a shiny dashboard and they'll still be like, no, I want a PDF because I need to print it out. Uh, alongside technology, another big constraint on analysts is time. Time is the eternal enemy. Some people like to deploy unsubstantiated critiques of civil servants that stereotype them as either lazy or obsessed with Byzantine process and accusing them of not doing any real work. But I don't think it would be a surprise to this audience for me to say that government analysts don't have enough time to do the things they need to do, let alone the things they'd like to do. As a result, there's a wide uptake of a just bleeping do it, or JFDI mindset, which can be a useful tool in the moment. But we need to think about the negative consequences of constantly operating under a JFDI mentality. It means we put off work with longer-term benefits until a time when the team is less busy. Spoiler alert, you're never going to be less busy. 
Advances in technology and practice, such as those embodied in the RAP approaches discussed by Anna, mean that there is a pressing need for analytical teams to invest time in proper re-engineering of their processes and workflows, which can't be done on top of or to the side of a day job. It's critical that development activities are, just, are seen as just as important as business as usual, and given their own distinct time. Which leads to my third and final point. We need to think our approach, rethink our approach to L&D. Almost everything I've heard about learning and development in my time in government was focused solely on individual learning. There was rarely a discussion about the development need of teams, and flowing from that, an approach to managing and leading teams that proactively makes time for learning and development. Not just about the team making time for individuals to learn something new, but making time for the team to learn together, to work on a problem together, or to spend time focusing on improving the way they currently do something. There's a need to be, there needs to be wider support for innovation time, setting aside time for individuals and teams to explore new things and new approaches. Some of the most useful things I've ended up doing have been because I've done them in my own time when I've toyed about with something, because in the day job I've just got too many other priorities going on. There also needs to be some thought, uh, some thought about supporting mid-career analysts. I know many analysts who are in a similar career point to me, grade seven leading a team with at least a decade of experience but they're finding themselves without the coding knowledge and experience of the people they manage. As resources tighten, this will cause problems as and when junior staff leave or get promoted, and critical roles remain unfilled for months or end up being cut. But these team leaders are still tasked with continuing to produce the same level and type of outputs, but because they're now running Python or R, uh, rather than a set of Excel spreadsheets, they don't necessarily have the ability to do them. There are many more things that can and should be discussed in the nexus of data analysis in government. Um, oh, I've got an extra 10 to 50 seconds, so I can say something more. Um, so I'll add lib here and say that I think, as I pointed out, technology is one of the, another big constraint that like, actually, yes, you've got, some big si you've got some big places which have silos of fancy cloud technologies and all these sorts of things, but lots and lots of analysts, just all they have on the desktop is Excel, and if they're lucky, um, access to R, or maybe they've still got SPSS, unfortunately. Um, anyway. I've used up my eight minutes, uh, so thank you for listening, and I hope you found it interesting. Thank you very much, Matt. A final reminder to those of you watching us online, use the Slido, bit.ly slash slidodb33. Um, and I'm going to start with an online question, actually. This is another one from Anonymous. Thank you for all of your questions this evening, Anonymous. Um, what do you think are the essential qualities of analytical leaders in government? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, I think it's about, I think one of the important ones is challenge. The best analytical leaders I've seen are about challenge, not just challenging teams to, to, to do their best, making sure that they can get through challenging circumstances, but critically challenging policy customers and to, to refine their, uh, their ask, to make that sort of, to make it clear. Um, like Claire was saying, clarity is really critical, I think, to trying to get to the bottom of a policy problem and trying to understand sort of, sometimes the language of policy is very, fluffy is not the right word, but it, it's, it's, it can be verbose and it can be very sort of all over the place and critical, like you want, as an analyst, you want a clear question to answer and it's about getting that, I think, is the most, the most important thing. I'm getting flashes of just about managing from a few years ago. <laughs> yes. Um, let's take a question from in the room. Who'd like to ask the first question? Matt, uh, down here. Matt, in your experience of working with government clients and being within government yourself, 
How do you overcome the problem of people who are politicians wanting to use people like you to make the data say what they want it to say rather than what it actually says? That's a good one. Um, I think I don't. I don't think I've ever actually sort of. I've been myself put in that sort of position of having to sort of say sort of the, the sort of policy-driven data and policy-driven evidence. Obviously, policy does drive the collection of data and evidence. Um, but I think that's where things like the analysis function, the government statistical services code of practice, and, and these sort of having those foundational sort of things of say, I'm a professional analyst, and these are sort of the cores. And that going back to those things is really critical as a way of defending the integrity of, of what you do and how you do it. Thanks. We've got uh, another few questions online. Um, I'll start with... I've got two from Anonymous, so I'll start with one of the Anonymouses. Um, what are the risks of focusing too much on analysis for service delivery rather than analysis for policy development? I actually don't think we do as much analysis for service delivery as we do uh, for policy analysis. Um, I think, I think that's, uh, that's where, because of the new feeds of data we're getting, because of digitising services, we've actually got an opportunity. And it's really interesting to see things like the work gov.uk have done for um, recommending sort of content to, to, to people who are browsing, etc. Um, I think the, the, the issue I was trying to sort of say about data and analysis and the operational sort of sphere is that I think now, because ministers and senior officials are spending so much time in their heads thinking about the delivery of digital services, and quite rightly, because that's a big and important evolution. But both that and analysis both talk about data. But they talk about data in different ways and different frames. And if you're always spending your time talking about data for operations, you can sort of sometimes forget the complexities that are necessary with data for analysis. Thanks. Uh, let's come back in the room. Right there at the back. Mary Susan Barry Bayes. I'm thinking more, this is more of a general sort of maybe observation or wanting to hear someone else's viewpoint in a different profession. But if you're within a profession in government, should there be an incentivization or expectation, A, that you will do CIPD and, you know, actually produce, you know, you know, your development, your, so your continuing development. Um, and also, could there be an opportunity for career breaks where you are or get a certain level of pay while you go off and do a different bit of study? Um, you know, and it, it, it's sort of part of your career progression. Uh, and would that sort of stop sort of people getting to you know, at a certain point, and you, you, that you're doing the same or similar job as over the last 10 or 15 years, but you don't know where to go next. Yeah, I think, I think there's a, like, sort of a second one, uh, second half of that question, I think. Yeah, the, it's really interesting how in, so in academia you have the concept of a sabbatical, um, and we don't have, sort of, I'm not saying that like, civil servants necessarily should have sabbaticals, but I do think it's that question about how do you really reframe sort of the journey of, of learning and development. Um, supposedly, civil servants have five days a year. Just before I left the cabinet office, they said, oh, you're going to get 10 days a year of L&D. I was like, I don't use five, so how am I going to use 10? Um, so I think that there is, but there's a real piece there about sort of how you, how you do it through a, how you do that through a career that's not just sort of a couple of days here or watching a course, et cetera. I think there's something really important about that and making space for proper development work um, that's focused on actually doing a thing, because that's really how you learn. 
Um, on the first bit around CPD logs, I think there's, I'm not really a fan personally of them. Um, I think there is, they can be valuable and some people will find them useful and they can be very, very but I've never found it something I do myself, um, probably because I'm just a very disorganized person and can't write things down. Um, but I think it's, it's connected to that point around planning, not, not just planning, but sort of the strategy people have in the way that they manage their team and they make sure that their staff are learning new things and how, but how their team is, how that's benefiting not just the individual, but benefiting sort of the, the work people are actually doing and achieving. I've got a question there. Thanks, Matt. The, the points you made about learning as a team and creating space for thinking about innovation were really insightful, but also fiendishly difficult, given your second point about time being the internal enemy. Yes. Um, I know a lot of teams that would really like to do this, uh, but also find it really challenging because it means um, owning up to not knowing things and not being sure what they can borrow, beg, steal. If there were, you could do one thing to make it easier, what would you do? I think it's the... I think the part of the reason that teams won't necessarily do something is because of this sort of... We've got all the, we've got all the day job stuff to do. Um, and so actually I think there's a piece around having the conversation with your policy customers. Um, to say, actually, we as a team, to, to do this better thing that we want to eventually do for you, actually, we as a team aren't going to be able to do this particular piece of work for, for this quarter or something. I think, so there's, a, there's an interplay there, because you are providing a service, but if you, if you want to improve that service, actually a, engage with the users to find out what it is that they, they, they want and what might benefit from. But engaging them in that conversation of you as a team developing, I think, is one of the, the routes I've seen to sort of partly helping achieve some of that. We've got a similar question from Adam Viles more online, which is how do we both champion and make time for team development, given you've identified its critical role? I don't know if there's anything else you want to add on that. I think, yeah, well, the, 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 the further reflection is the sort of, I think it's that usual thing that happens in government is we, we, take a, we, talk, we talk a good game about everything, but actually the, the reality of practice is very different. That Yes, we say we're a learning culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but actually we, we aren't. We don't, we don't make time. If, if we were a learning culture, we would prioritise it properly by giving people the time and the space to do it and saying it is as important as the day job. Or the, not the day job, it is part of the day job. It's, it's as important as business as usual. Uh, a final very quick question. Anonymous asks, what is the key data analysis tool you would recommend? And I'd ask a broader question, which is, what would you say to anybody thinking of a data or analysis career in government? So I think Tool, I'd, I'd pick up on the point that Anna made about sort of benefiting on open source, and obviously there's sort of, that's particularly R and, and Shy, uh, R and Python are the two sort of big uh, main tools in that space. But there's Julia and other other languages around. But I think that's the critical thing because there's actually so many, there's so much of a community out there, both in government, increasingly in government, but also out on Twitter. Um, the nicest the nicest bit of my Twitter feed is anything to do with R. Uh, not the politics or the journalism or anything else that I follow. Um, and I think as a, a career in, in, in analysis, is, it's really interesting to get to do some really, really interesting bits and pieces. I think the piece for starting out is, is trying to work out sort of what you're interested in, which I know is a bit of a cop-out question, but it's, there's, a, there's a piece around sort of what, what, what is it that you like really enjoy doing? Um, find the bit of that and work into that, work into that piece. I'm 
I'm a person who is interested in how organisations and systems work, which is partly why I ended up in the cabinet office at the very centre doing sort of a relatively niche and weird thing rather than going to do something like climate change analysis or, or um, something to do with, with housing, for example. Um, and so I think there's that, there's that piece, and, and particularly sort of, again, what type of analysis are you interested in? Do you want to make nice, interesting charts that sort of tell stories, or are you much more interested in the sort of the, the peculiarities of how you collect um, data? A perfect note on which to end. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. A few quick pieces, a few quick parish notices uh, before I let everyone in the building escape to the free drink and nibbles. Um, keep an eye on the Institute for Government website, particularly the live blog, for the latest on the current political developments. And remember that the next data bites will be happening here on Wednesday, the 5th of October. There are lots of other IFG events coming up, uh, which you can find on the website as well. Love, leveling up public appointments, four years on from Carillion. God, is it really that long? Uh, the chair of the National Audit Office in conversation, filmmaker Michael Cockrell, off-gem briefing on the energy market. Loads of stuff happening at uh, Labour Conference in Liverpool and Conservative Conference in Birmingham, including around uh, data and the future of government. Um, cabinet office as well, CDDO, um, have their big Data Connect 22 coming up, a sort of, I think a week uh, full of events uh, coming up later in September, so do check out their website as well. All that is left for me to say is a huge thank you to all of you joining us online all of you in the audience here in the building as well. And please do join me in a huge round of applause for our fantastic speakers this evening. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.